Um, a few years ago, <clears throat> I was speaking at a retreat, uh, like a college, it's like a conference uh, for co- Christian college students. In fact, it was at that retreat where I met two people that have now, are now members of our church. They moved to Brooklyn and then now Andrea and then Dylan, a really, really cool thing. But I was speaking at this retreat, this conference, and there was like a Q&A after all the speakers spoke. And I remember there was a question that was asked to me, and it was something along the lines of, what are the three things that a Christian or a young, a, college, a Christian college student or a young Christian should seek to learn? And I, to be honest, I can't, I don't remember what I answered in that moment. I, you know, when you're on the spot, Q&A, it's really difficult to have like a good, profound answer. Uh, but I thought a lot about, about that question in the months that followed that. And I even wrote out what I was like, if I was asked that question again, what my answer would be. And I wrote it out and, and this, is what, this is what I believe that young Christians should seek to learn. First, develop an understanding of grace for yourself and for others, because you're going to need it and others are going to need it in your life. Second, think about heaven a lot. If there's one thing that young Christians don't do very often is we don't think about heaven enough. And, you know, the scriptures tell us to set our mind on things that are above. And so I said that. But then the final thing that I feel like is important for young Christians, especially college Christians or maybe high school students, is to prepare or develop a theology of suffering before you suffer. Because we're all going to face suffering or trials in our lives. Jesus said as much. In this world, you will have troubles. And what I've found is that those who don't take the time to consider what the scriptures teach about suffering, when they get hit with something difficult in their lives, they're not prepared. And I've seen people walk away from their faith And I've seen people's faith completely shattered because they didn't develop an understanding of suffering before suffering happened. And one of the things I've learned is that you can't develop a theology of suffering on the fly. You need to know God's character and you need to know what God says is true. And you need to know you need to decide today what you believe about God in the midst of storms. So that when the storm comes, you've already got an anchor to hold on to. Because if you're trying to reach for the anchor in the middle of the storm, you're going to have a hard time finding it. And it's very difficult. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But the second part of that statement, he said, take heart. I have overcome the world. And yes, we will have suffering. And yes, even if you've lived a beautiful, perfect life up to this point, it's not always going to be that way. And on those days where you have trouble, you'll need to know that Christ has overcome the world and you need to fight to believe that today so that when suffering comes tomorrow, you'll have something to hold on to. And we're in our second week of a study on the seven letters to the churches in in the book of Revelation. And Jesus, what he's doing in the first uh, three chapters, essentially, of the book of Revelation, Jesus writes seven different letters to seven unique churches in Asia Minor, which is basically modern day Turkey. And today he writes to this church in a city called Smyrna. And it was a church that was just that was about to go through immense suffering and immense pain. And Jesus writes to them before it all comes about so that they will be prepared for the difficult days ahead. So he tells them, I'm going to help you build a theology of suffering 
because suffering's about to come and I don't want you to be unprepared. And I think this letter, even though we're, it wasn't written directly to us, by God's Spirit, it is written to us. And I believe it's just as relevant to us today because most of us in this room will face difficulty at some point in our lives. If you haven't already, you will. And Jesus teaches us here in this letter what is true in the midst of suffering and how we can overcome and how we can maintain our faith in the midst of storms. And this is what he says. This is Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich, he says. I love that. And I know the slander of those that say that they are Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches to the one, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, the city of Smyrna, what is Smyrna all about? If you've visited Turkey or if you're from Turkey, you know that uh, Smyrna is today the city of Izmir, a very large city, beautiful city. And it was large during that time as well uh, in, in the first century. It was an extremely beautiful city. It was a port city. It was a hub of sort of Roman economic uh, uh, trade and all of that. And it was a, an extremely wealthy city of all the cities in Asia Minor. This was probably the most wealthy. Their major export was myrrh. If you remember when Jesus was born, he was brought myrrh as a gift. These are, this is a very expensive gift. In fact, the name Smyrna comes from the word myrrh. And myrrh was a very, very, very expensive, very, very, uh, I mean, very lucrative export. And this is, where, this is what the city produced. They produced myrrh. And what's interesting is that myrrh was a type of perfume that was created by the crushing of the fruit from a small thorn bush. And so this beautiful aroma, this beautiful scent was created by crushing. And that is a great metaphor for this church in Smyrna. It was a church that's made beautiful through their suffering. But what are these Christians in Smyrna facing? So this is a wealthy city. But Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander that you face. All that you're enduring. And what Jesus says, he tells us that this church in Smyrna, they were persecuted, they were poor, and they were insulted. And scholars and historians note that the only reason these Christians would have been so poor in such a prosperous city is because they would have likely been, they, is because they were the subject of relentless persecution. They were likely, there were jobs that were withheld from them. They were probably taxed at a higher rate than other people unjustly. They faced relentless persecution. And this is why in a city of unbelievable wealth, there was this small group of people that followed Jesus. They were persecuted and they, it, it put them into poverty. And Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. And the reason that they were persecuted, the reason they were poor is because they refused to worship Caesar. Now, Smyrna was a very proud Roman city. 
They were proud to be Roman. They were known for emperor worship. In fact, it was likely, Smyrna was likely the capital for worship of the emperor in this part of the world at the time. They, just a few years, a few decades after this, because of their devotion to the emperor, they rewarded the opportunity to build a temple to the goddess Roma. And so this is a big deal. I mean, this was a city known for emperor worship. And every year there would be a parade in Smyrna and every resident would join a march to the emperor's temple. And they would all march their way through the city and it would end in the emperor's temple. And they would take their money and they would throw a pinch of incense into a sacrificial fire. And together the whole city would proclaim Caesar is Lord and God. And for most citizens, this was just a harmless patriotic gesture. But for Christians, this was heresy. And they refused to take part in this because there's only one Lord and only one God. And they refused to declare that Caesar is Lord. Now, they paid their taxes just like Jesus told them to. But they refused to proclaim that Caesar was Lord because they knew that Jesus was Lord. And so they faced resentment and pressure and persecution from the Roman government because they did not participate in this ritual. Now, they also faced persecution from the Jewish synagogue. This is why Jesus is like he calls the synagogue of Satan. This isn't excusing anti-Semitism or anything like that. What was happening is at this point in time, Christians, this is, this is just about 70 years after Jesus has been crucified. And so Christian, Christianity at that time was still considered sort of a, a, a denomination, if you will, of Judaism. And there was a close connection. But as uh, Christians in Smyrna, which were not ethnic Jews, began following Jesus, they began to outnumber the number of ethnic Jews within the synagogue and it create, created cultural tension. And in the end, the Christians, the non-ethnic Jewish Christians were forced out of the synagogue, which meant they no longer received religious protection when it comes to relationships with the empire. And so they now were facing persecution from the government and they were being, they had now been betrayed by their closest allies and what they thought, and in many cases, their family members. And at the time that this letter is being written to these Christians, they're already facing immense persecution, intense persecution. There are accounts of Smyrna, Christians in Smyrna being thrown to lions or dogs to be eaten. Others had already at this time in history been burned at the stake. Some had been crucified and others were just simply beheaded. And you're like, okay, that's the situation this church is in. And Jesus is like, I know what you're going through. Now, and maybe Jesus gives them some helpful encouragement. Well, hang tight. It's going to get better. And just hang tight. And in a few years, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. He's not saying 10 literal days. Remember, uh, Revelation is a book full of symbolism and imagery. He's saying you're going to be in you're going to be in prison for a long time. You're going to face persecution for a long time. And he says, be faithful unto death. And Jesus tells them that their immediate future will involve much more persecution, much more prison and even more death. Now, I just want to say a word about the persecuted church today, because we can read this story and it feels like a million years ago. And you're like, that was 2000 years ago, man, it's crazy that Christians faced that back in the day. But, you know, I don't really feel a connection to the present moment to what these Christians went through. But the idea of persecution, at least to the degree that these Christians experience, 
is so foreign to us as American Christians. Because we just do not understand this. And we can read verses like 2 Timothy 3.12, which say, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And we're like, we read that and we're like, I, I struggle to make a daily connection with that in my life because it's, I don't feel like I'm persecuted as a follower of Jesus in America in the 21st century. I mean, for goodness sake, we meet in a public school. We have favor with a public school system. We're not facing persecution. So how do we relate? And what do we do? Is there any connection of what this church went through 2,000 years ago and what the church is facing today? And the truth is, that sociologists, historians, missiologists will tell you that right now at this moment in time, June, whatever today is, 2019, the persecution of Christians around the world right now at this moment is greater than it has ever been at any point in time in history. Nigeria, South Sudan, India, North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Yemen, Syria, and the list goes on. If you go to opendoorsusa.org, you can read about what many of our brothers and sisters in Christ are facing every single day. Right now, while we are gathered to worship, people are gathered to, gathered to worship all over the world right now, many of which are doing it in basements, many of which are doing it in homes, and fear at any moment that the door could be kicked in and they could be arrested, they could be tried, and potentially even executed. This is happening in our world today. Last week in USA Today, David Curry wrote an article titled, Global Persecution is Worsening While American Churches Slumber. And this is what he said. Curry writes, Christians in America need to wake up. Yet the leadership of the American church with its super pastors and mega churches is whistling through the graveyard. The beast that we have created, which relies on upbeat music and positivity to attract donors to sustain large budgets, leaves little room for pastors to talk about the suffering of global Christians. Like most of the culture, the American church is more concerned about college entrance scandals and Game of Thrones than persecution. Inoculated by entertainment and self-absorption, they are completely detached from the experience of the global church. The American church is feeding itself to death while the worldwide church is being murdered. And 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, if one member suffers in the body of Christ, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. And if our brothers and sisters right now in South Sudan and in Libya and in Syria are suffering right now and they are weeping. We are called by Christ himself to weep with those who weep. And so what I'm trying to tell you is that Smyrna's situation is not an outlier in history. It is a situation that is faced by millions of Christians even today. And I can only imagine we read this book and we're going to get something out of this today. But can you imagine what a treasure Revelation chapter 2 verses 8 through 11 is for those in Syria right now or those in Egypt right now that read this and they are facing persecution today and they read of a Jesus who does not forget about them and does not ignore them, but speaks to them in the middle of their persecution. So this is not an irrelevant letter to a church 2000 years ago. This is very relevant to the world today. But listen to what Jesus says to encourage these believers. He says, verse 10, 
Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now one of the first things I want you to notice in this letter, he has no criticisms for them, no harsh words for them. His tone has shifted. Remember with Ephesus it was a tone of rebuke. And maybe even pleading and heartbreak. And now he shifts. This is a tone of encouragement. He says, don't fear. Be faithful unto death. I'm going to give you the crown of life. And you will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus tells the church, he says, you're going to face intense persecution. You're going to face prison and even death. But you need to know death cannot harm you. I am preparing a place in heaven for you. And even though you may have to face the first death, meaning the earthly death, Earlier than maybe perhaps you expected or maybe more violently than you had hoped. Even though you may experience the first death, you will not experience a second death. The moment of your first death is the moment you walk into the presence of into my presence and you will hear well done, good and faithful servant. You will receive the crown of life. And we have historical proof. This is amazing. Historical proof that the Christians in Smyrna that day that received this letter, that they listened and they heeded the words of Jesus. Historical proof that they obeyed Jesus in this encouragement. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of a man named Polycarp. He was a member of this church in Smyrna. He was probably 20 or 30 years old at the time that this letter was written. He was a student of John the Apostle. I mean, he's one of the closest, as far as like writings go, he's one of the closest people we have to the apostles that we have writings from them. And Polycarp, years after this letter was written, he actually became the pastor of this church in Smyrna. And by the time he became the pastor, persecution had heated up so much that it was just almost unbearable. And according to the first century historian Eusebius, that had cool names back then, I actually, no joke, I floated the idea of Polycarp with our first child. And my wife, she was like, no, we did not name our son Polycarp. But nevertheless... Polycarp was brought before the the Roman proconsul and he was told, you need to stop preaching the name of Jesus. And the proconsul warned him. He said, this is, I mean, this is first century history. This is primary source material. The proconsul warned, uh, Polycarp said, I will set you free if you reproach Christ. And Polycarp said, 80 and six years I have served Christ and never once did he wrong me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? And the proconsul came back and he said, well, then swear at least to the power of Caesar. And Polycarp replied, he's a boss, okay? I swear to the power of one much greater than Caesar. Give me a day and I will teach you about him. See why I want to name my son Polycarp? Proconsul says, well, then I will burn you alive if you don't change your mind. Polycarp says back, you threaten me with fire, which burns for only an hour and then is distinguished. But what do you know about the fire of judgment? Come on, boys, bring the fire. (laughs) And he died with dignity that day, burned at the stake. He didn't even have to be tied and chained to the stake. He said, don't worry about me. I'm not going anywhere. I will endure this. And he died with dignity and standing firm in the, on the name of Jesus. And when he breathed his last breath, you know how painful it must have been. But that moment when he crossed 
from this life into the next. He went right into the arms of Jesus. And you know what Jesus rewarded him with? The crown of life. And history tells us that the church in Smyrna heeded the words of Jesus, not just Polycarp, but all of them. They lived and died for their faith. They did not compromise, even in the flames, even in the lion's den. And I want you to know this. Of all the seven churches that are listed in the book of Revelation, only one still exists today. And it's the church in Smyrna. I I don't know, eight, nine hours ago, a church in Izmir, Turkey gathered to proclaim the name of Jesus in the midst of even present day suffering. They have held true to the word of Jesus. Praise God for them. Listen to me. Jesus was not lying in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He was not lying when he said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Now, what about us? What do we take from this today? Because it's likely that most of us in this room, though some of us might, especially those of us who are not from the United States and will not end our lives here. It's likely, though, however, that most of us will not experience a fatal type of persecution in this life. But all of us in this room will face some sort of hardship or suffering at some point. Sickness, loneliness, loss, pain, fear, unmet desires, unmet expectations. And I think this passage, while it was written directly to those being persecuted, I think it can help us develop a theology of suffering as we prepare for the days that are ahead. You may face suffering in this life. And this passage helps us prepare those college students that ask, what can we learn? What do young Christians need to learn? I think this passage teaches them something that they need to know. So what does this passage teach us about suffering and pain? First thing is that Jesus can be trusted. Verse eight, it says the words of the first and the last. I love this. Who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and poverty, Jesus says. See, Jesus begins this letter writing. He's writing a letter to Christians that are dying. And Jesus says, I've died. I know. I know your tribulation. I've been there. Everything they're facing, persecution, poverty, slander. Jesus is like, I I know. And there's something so powerful about those words, isn't there? I know. I don't know about you, but when I'm going through something difficult, I'm always comforted most when I'm able to be around someone who's gone through exactly what I've gone through. Empathy is a very powerful thing. And when you go through loss, you want to the person you want with their arm around you is somebody that knows what loss feels like, because there's nothing more beautiful and more comforting than when somebody who knows what you're going through says I know. And the converse is true. There's nothing more trite and upsetting than when somebody who doesn't know what you're going through says, oh, I know (laughs) it'll get better. But when somebody who's been there, I died and came back to life, says Jesus. I know. I know. That's powerful. 
And Jesus says that to this church in Smyrna. He says, I know your tribulation. You are not alone. And here's the thing about Jesus that is true is that no matter what you're facing today, I don't care what your story is, what loss you've experienced, what abuse you've experienced, what slander you've experienced, what pain and hurt has been inflicted in your life. There is nothing you have experienced that Jesus of Nazareth cannot relate to. Loneliness, betrayal, persecution, insult, slander, murder, loss, grief. He's experienced it all. And he looks into you in your pain and says to you what no other person on this planet can say to you. He says, I know, I know. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, For we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Are you lonely? Jesus knows. Are you in pain? Jesus knows. Are you grieving? Jesus knows. Are you concerned? Are you frustrated? Are you scared? Jesus knows. I know, he says. Jesus can be trusted. And I need you to drill that deep into your bones today. Because there's going to come a day where your trust in Jesus will be tested. And if you don't nail that down now, you will believe the lie when suffering comes. Did God really say that? Can he really be trusted? So, I mean, put the stake in the ground today and say, I know that Jesus can be trusted. Second thing I need you to see from this text that teaches us about the Christian life and suffering is that faithfulness is an investment. Faithfulness is an investment into the kingdom of God. He says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And here's what we all need to know. Sometimes faithfulness to Jesus in your life will come at a cost. For some, the cost is huge. It might be life or death. It might be losing your family because they say we reject you because you have taken the name of Jesus. For some, the cost of following Jesus is very large. For others of us, the cost may be small, but there's always a cost. And in some parts of the world, faithfulness to Jesus might mean death. And for you, faithfulness to Jesus might be some other cost. It might be loneliness. It might be ostracism. It might be unmet expectations or desires in your life. I don't know what it is, but following Jesus, obedience to Jesus in this world, at this time, in this city will come at a cost. But Jesus makes a promise that if you are faithful, every act of obedience today is a deposit into a kingdom eternal reward. My wife and I have Roth IRAs and, you know, we got, and then we've got other, you know, investment accounts each month. My wife and I, we take a significant amount of our paychecks and we invest it. That's what we do. And then what that often means is that we aren't able to buy certain things we want in the moment because we've tied our money up in the future. We've put it in investments and that money can't be touched. So there are certain trips that we can't take. There are certain restaurants we can't go to. There are certain uh, things we can't buy. Listen to me, church. I want a Martin HD 28 guitar so bad. But I care about retirement more, right? But there, we limit our options for the sake of our future. 
And there's this beautiful thing. I don't know if you've learned this. The younger you are, the better new, the more good news this is. But there's this beautiful thing in this world called compound interest. And that means that in 30 to 35 years, every little bit we put aside every month in 30 to 35 years will become wealth. And we'll be able to do the things we want to do. And we'll be able to retire. And that will provide for us in our final years. And listen, it's hard to invest my money today because I want it. Because it means I have to limit myself. To invest money into a Roth IRA or 401k or whatever it is, it means you have to choose to limit yourself today. But when I'm 67 years old and I don't have to worry about the future, I'm not going to have any regrets. And I'm not even going to be thinking about the sacrifices I had to make when I was 30. And the Christian life is a lot like this. Faithfulness to Jesus requires us to make sacrifices in many ways today. But the promise is that everything we do for this for Christ in this life is a deposit into the kingdom of God. And every moment of obedience in this life will come back to us. Jesus says a hundredfold. Jesus himself said, when you leave your mother and father, when you leave wealth, when you leave whatever, all these things for my name's sake, you will receive a hundredfold in the kingdom of God. And there's coming a day when we will be face to face with Jesus and he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And he will place on our heads the very crown of life. And in that moment, every act of obedience to Jesus that felt like such a sacrifice in our earthly lives will be totally worth it. Faithfulness is an investment. Final thing I want you to see is that Jesus overcomes. Jesus overcomes. We know the end of the story. Remember that when you're in the middle of the crisis. The story does not end the way you fear it will end. One of the things I love the most about my wife is that she cannot stand suspense. She doesn't like surprises, so I, I don't. I, she likes to know everything in advance. And where this is cutest and most funny is when we watch movies or television. If there is any threat of danger or punishment for a character in a film or in a television series, my wife will squirm and squeal in on the couch, and it's so funny to watch. Listen, you guys ever seen the movie Patch Adams? It's about it's a comedy about a doctor who dresses like a clown and brings joy to children. And my wife was terrified because there's a scene where he is he's without a he's a med student and without a license. He's in like the kids ward, like dancing with bedpans on his feet and like a clown nose. And my wife was so terrified that he was going to get caught by like the professors that she had to close her eyes. I'm like, this is a comedy. I can't even remember the name of it, but one time she called me. This was when we were dating. She was like, I had to turn my movie off tonight because it was too suspenseful. It was a Queen Latifah movie. I was like, how scary could it be? So what my wife does when we're watching movies that have suspense, she pulls up Wikipedia on her phone and she reads the end of the story. So she can enjoy the movie without fear because she knows the end of the story. So it doesn't matter what kind of danger Wonder Woman or Captain Marvel is in. Or whatever situation Jack Bauer has gotten himself into, she already knows there's a sequel. So even though there's struggle and fear and how are they going to make it, how are they going to get out of this, she can handle it because she knows the end of the story. 
And Jesus says in verse 8, My words are the words from the one who is the first and the last. Jesus says, when it's all over, I'm still standing. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He says, in your life, you're going to face struggles. But so did I, Jesus says. Jesus faced struggles. But the hope of the gospel is that your disappointments and your suffering are not the final word over your life. Jesus lived a life perfectly obedient to his heavenly father, yet it still led to death on a cross. And when Jesus breathed his final breath at Calvary, it felt like all hope was lost. And you know the disciples were discouraged. They didn't know how they could go on. It looked like evil had won on that day. But that wasn't the end of the story. Three days later, Jesus stood up from a grave, took off his burial clothes, and threw on the robe of a conquering king. And you know what his first words to his disciples were? Don't be afraid. And if you read through the Bible, you will find that God's people find themselves in what looks like to be impossible situations over and over and over and over again. And even today, in many parts of the world, it looks and feels like evil is going to win. But Jesus encourages us to read to the very end of the book. I am the first and the last. When it's over, I'm still standing. And if you're with me, So will you. Nate Saint, whose father, Steve Saint, was murdered along with Jim Elliott. If you are familiar with that missionary story, his father was murdered by the very people. He was a missionary to Ecuador and he was murdered by the very people he tried to reach. And years later, Nate Saint went back to that village to be a missionary to the people that killed his father. And by God's grace, he was able to see that entire tribe come to know Jesus. And Nate Saint says this. He says, why do we always think that every chapter of our lives has to make sense? When God promises only that in the last chapter will all the others make sense. And the suffering you face today, it might not make sense in this moment. Just like it did not make sense when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died didn't make any sense. But the end of the story, him rising from the dead and defeating death, it all made sense once we saw that. And you're facing something today. I don't know what it is, and I can't try to tell you why it's happening. But all I know is that there is a day, if you are in Christ, that you will walk into the kingdom of God and you will fall on your knees. And Jesus himself will embrace you. And all the pain, all the suffering, all the sacrifice will feel like nothing more than a temporary affliction in the arms of Jesus. And it will all make sense. It doesn't have to make sense today and it won't make sense. But on that day, it's going to all make sense because Jesus is the first and the last. Now we're going to take communion in a moment. And when you take the bread and the cup, I want you to remember the cross of Jesus. The very day where it looked like evil had won and suffering was at its peak. And it didn't look like anything good could come of it. But you take the body and you take the blood, the bread and the cup. And as you consume it, you remember that three days later, Jesus rose from the dead and gave us life. And he says that all who believe in him will not perish, will not face the second death, but will have eternal life. Let's pray and let's take communion together.